Pray with me. Father, thank you again that we can shine a light on a most special and significant occasion. And really every Lord's Day we we can reflect on the truth that we are here because your Son rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering creation. But even today, Lord, we want to think about it deeply and carefully and to see your people encouraged afresh by the amazing reality of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray, amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of John. John's Gospel, uh, chapter 20. We will be going over a resurrection narrative. And yes, you read that correctly. That is 18 verses. 18 verses we're going to navigate today. Uh, talking about the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess him, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There is no salvation without the resurrection. There is no salvation without believing in a Jesus that rose from the dead and believing in a God that raised His Son from the dead. The resurrection carries so much vital truth with it, and it is a great benefit to us if we take time to focus on a variety of those truths, those precious truths and blessings. If you were with us on Good Friday, we talked about what uh, the cross of Christ accomplished, and of course that goes hand in hand with the truths of the resurrection and what it identifies of Jesus as having accomplished. On one hand, the resurrection shows that Jesus was approved in His work on the cross, that the Father was able to look down and be in full agreement with Christ's cry that it is finished. God the Father affirmed that work. Full atonement was made. Propitiation for sins had been made. God was satisfied with Christ's perfect sacrifice. He accepted His payment for sins. And the resurrection affirms all that the cross declares. Validates everything. In the resurrection, Christ conquered death, and so conquers death on behalf of His people and brings us into fellowship with God the Father. When we celebrate the resurrection, commonly called Easter, we are not only saying that Christ has risen, and He is risen indeed, we are saying also that Christ has risen and now reigns as Lord and King of heaven and earth. And one of the reasons we are coming to the Gospel of John today, on one hand, I've actually never preached a sermon from a Gospel on the resurrection. So, you know, uh, all things new today. But I want us to see some of the, I think, important things that John references in his resurrection narrative. The title of today's sermon is this, I Have Seen the Lord. And that statement from Mary Magdalene becomes a question for everyone. And that question, of course, is, have you seen the Lord? Have I seen the Lord? Many people, anyone, may claim to have seen the Lord. I think it's common today to hear from a variety of people that they have heard from the Lord, but the Lord told them this or that. And that strikes us as something significant and even impressive. But to say, I have seen the Lord takes it to a completely different level. It is one thing to hear His voice, but to behold Him, to see Him glorified, to see Christ glorified face to face, is truly a statement. And so, these words of Mary Magdalene become the foundation of our lesson this morning. The primary theme of the Gospel of John, as is commonly understood, is Christ in His deity, Christ in His divinity. The fact that 
Jesus is God in the flesh. Not merely a, not merely a demigod, not half man, half God, but fully man and fully God. It's what we call the, the hypostatic union. There is a mystery to it. How someone can be both fully divine and yet fully human. It really boggles the mind to even try to comprehend something like that, and yet it goes hand in hand with John's other important theme. And that theme is a command, and it is this, believe. Believe. How the Father has revealed His Son to us, we are called to believe. Look and believe. To trust in His Son and to trust in Him alone. To know that what God has spoken concerning His Son is absolutely true. And we believe in the testimony of the resurrection because God has said it. We believe in the testimony of the resurrection because just like the characters in the Gospel of John, it is something that has been revealed to us. You cannot believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ unless God reveals it to you. Unless He opens your heart and gives you ears to hear and a mind to understand and a heart to believe that we know that He is speaking the truth. And so there's many things we could probably see in a text like this in John chapter 20, verses 1-18. through But I want to present at least four things regarding the Lord. If we have seen the Lord, how are we to see Him? How are we to walk away from a text like this and say, okay, I have seen the Lord. Well, how do I know? Well, I want to say we would identify four particular things. So I'll say them ahead of time because they are kind of woven throughout this passage and we will identify them as we move through it. But I would say four primary things. I have seen the Lord. That is, I have seen the Lord, number one, as the true temple. Secondly, I have seen the Lord as true priest. Or you could put high priest. Thirdly, I have seen the Lord as the true Adam. And fourthly, and finally, I have seen the Lord as the true king. I have seen the Lord. True temple, true priest, true Adam, and true king. Four things. Four ways that I would desire for you to see the Lord Jesus Christ today. To see Christ in His resurrection. And I would also say, if you have not seen these four things in Christ, you have not seen the Lord at all. If we are to see the Lord, we have to see the Lord on His terms as He has revealed Himself. In his resurrection. So what we are, what John is giving us here really is a full view of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's significant because in the opening chapter of this uh, gospel, John writes, of his fullness we have received and grace upon grace. If you have truly grasped Jesus Christ, you will be, you will be a partaker of grace upon grace upon grace. One manifestation, one revelation, one expression of grace after another. The Christian life should be oozing with grace. We should see grace all over. And so we would see that fullness and receive the grace that accompanies it. So let's get into the text today and we'll just move through it. John chapter 20. And just for the sake of time and, and really uh, hammering home the point because there is a lot that John, there's a lot in John 20. But we're not going to try to what I'm not going to do today is try to take the narrative here and try to corroborate it with all the other three Gospels. That could be for another time. What I want to see here is how Mary Magdalene has seen the Lord and how we are to see the Lord as well. So, hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So we understanding it, it's still dark, it's still Early other Gospels talk about the same thing. We know that the, the, the breaking of dawn, uh, it's, still, it's still early, the Sabbath is over, and I think you see an urgency in the mind of Mary to get to the tomb to continue this embalming process of the Lord Jesus. So one thing we can establish about Mary is that even though she loved the Lord, right now, because He has been crucified and He has been confirmed, to have died an actual death on the cross, or the resurrection is something that I think is the, the furthest from her mind. Various commentators remark that up to a hundred pounds of, of spices and, and, and embalming equipment were brought for the purpose of embalming Jesus. And so here they are in the morning to anoint him. 
Because even though he has died, their love for him is still evident. Their love for him is still strong. And so when she comes to the tomb, it had already been rolled away. It had already been taken away. So what's the first thing she does? Now, this chapter should be kind of exhausting because there is a lot of running going on. People are running back and forth. And so the first thing that Mary does when she sees the stone rolled away is she runs back. She runs from the tomb. And if you look at the text, it says this, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, the writer of this gospel, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. That's why we, that's how we know that the resurrection is not forefront in her mind. She believes that someone has come and has taken away the body of the Lord, that, that, that his body has been removed from this, from this tomb. So she's not expecting it. And so we can say she's not, she's not part of some conspiracy to pretend that the Lord has risen from the dead. And so what happens? So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two, more running, the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came in and came to the tomb first. Came to the tomb first. Okay. So it's, it's kind of funny that John wants us to know that he is a faster runner than Peter, but I think this is interesting because the Lord uses various people to write his word from Old Testament to New Testament, and their personalities, their writing styles are not lost. And they're going to reference different details. And so this is of historical significance. This is how John remembers it. John says some other things that I don't quite understand. I don't know, I have not unlocked the mystery of why John says there were 153 fish caught later on in the gospel. Same thing here, yet it remains part of his record, a reliable record at that. And so it says here that they got to the tomb, and verse 5, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. So let's stop there for now. So there's a lot going on here. And I think one thing that sticks out for sure is the manner in which the linen wrappings were laying. Whatever, whatever the scene is, however the scene is depicted here, one thing we know for sure is that this was not done in haste. We can't say that someone came by and quickly swooped the body of Jesus away. This was done in a calculated, orderly fashion. Whoever wrapped these linens up took their time. And so as we, as we pause here, I think we see something that is very significant. I think the first thing we see is Jesus as true temple. And of course, this is going to go hand in hand with our understanding of Jesus as priest. Why would John reference the linen wrappings there? You have to remember, okay, especially since we understand who's writing this. Remember that after the Holy, after the Holy Spirit was sent, what happened to the disciples? They understood finally. They were able to piece it together. They understood the resurrection. Even even here, it says very clearly in verse 9 that as of yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. But they believed anyway, even not having all the information, even not having the wisdom from on high from the Holy Spirit to be able to put put all of this together. And that's one of the reasons we read from Acts 2 today, so we would understand that. That's after Pentecost. That's when that knowledge, that wisdom, that revelation was given to the disciples so that they could clearly declare how all the law and the prophets foretold that the Messiah must suffer the agony of death on the cross and rise from the dead on the third day. But all these linens, what do we do with all this? We have to remember that nothing that the Bible says is wasted. It's all there for a point. So I believe here that what John is calling our mind to is certain truth, certain imagery from the Old Testament. These guys know their Old Testament, so they're not saying these things flippantly or pointlessly. And so we look at the linen wrappings, and John is calling to mind here the temple. Now, what was significant 
about the temple. Let's start there. What was significant about the temple? It's where heaven and earth met. We see that imagery throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and well into the New. This theme of temple is immensely significant. One of the most significant themes in all of Scripture. The temple is where heaven meets earth. And from that, significant for us, a temple is where man meets with God. Where God meets with man. And where the two, ideally, will commune together and enjoy fellowship with one another. And I believe this is what John is getting is getting at, is drawing our attention to. In fact, John mentions the temple quite a bit in his gospel. And I believe that he is pointing out to us the tomb as sort of a miniature temple, and he is connecting us very thoroughly with the Old Testament temple system, and that's where we bring in also the issue of the Lord as true priest. We know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, that he is he is... He is the one to whom the temple pointed. All those temple sacrifices, the imagery, all that went on in there was meant to point us to the accomplishments of Christ. From the showbread to the lampstands, to to, to, to the washing basins, to the sacrifice itself, the Holy of Holies, all of that and more pointed to what Christ would accomplish. We even see this in his crucifixion narrative. When When he is crucified, what happens? The thick linen curtain barring the way to the Holy of Holies is suddenly ripped open from top to bottom. And what does that, what does that tell us? It, tell, it tells us that we now are able to enter into a new and living way through Christ because he has already passed through the heavenly veil. And by virtue of his shed blood on the, blood on the cross, we have access to the most holy place. We have access to the presence of God. Jesus now is the temple. In John 2.19, he says this, destroy this temple. Right? The temple he was talking about was his body. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. Jesus talks about himself as the light of the world in the Gospel of John. Points us to the, the lampstands that gave light to the temple property. Jesus is also, you could say that the altar of incense also points to the Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrifice. He is that aroma, that pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so now they come to the tomb and they see the linen cloths there folded up. Points to the work, a very important work, probably the most significant work of the Old Testament temple, and that is the work of the high priest. The work of the high priest. And of course, Jesus' death was, it occurred on Passover, points us to the, the Day of Atonement, known in Hebrew as Yom Kippur. And this goes back to Leviticus 23, verses 27 through 28. So that's, that's the first reference. The largest reference of the Day of Atonement and the duties of the high priest comes from also the book of Leviticus. Write this down, chapter 16 verses 1 through 34. And of course, the Day of Atonement was meant for the high priest. That was his special day to go and perform a ritual in order to atone for the sins of the people. And that means all people, all of Israel. So this was a very serious task. You didn't want the high priest to mess up on this day. You wanted him to perform in such a way to where the sacrifice would be accepted by God. And for that, he would have to go into what we would call the hot zone. He would have to go to ground zero. He would have to go into the Holy of Holies before the very presence of God and make this offering. Sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. Remember, you'd have a, you'd have two, two sacrificial animals. One would, would signify the, the, the expiation. So the the high priest would lay his hands on these animals. One would be sent into the wilderness. That signifies our sins being sent far away from us. Expiation, sin has to be removed. And of course, sin also has to be atoned for. So once a year, this would occur. And this, this other sacrificial animal would be slaughtered. The blood would be sprinkled on the ark. And then, of course, its remains would be burnt outside of the, of the, of the assembly. So you have a very, bloody thing going on here. So when you think of the temple, 
Among other things, I'd say above all things, if you were a Jew living in the Old Testament or time or if you were living in the first century, you would think temple, blood. You would think the temp- of the temple as a bloody place, as a place full of death. And for good reason. Because the soul that sins, it must die. There must be a sacrifice for sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. There's no way around that. And yet, God desires to dwell amongst His people. So in order for God to dwell amongst His people, there must be blood spilt. Something must die so that sinners can draw near and experience communion and fellowship with God. It's a necessity. And yet it demonstrates God's love for His people. God desires to dwell with His people. God desires to bless His people. God desires to give His mercy and grace to His people. And so this points to the empty tomb. But blood has already been spilt. There is no blood in this tomb. The work has already been done. And the tomb is empty. And so going on, to just relay the significance of these garments, of these linens. What was supposed to happen? Again, drawing from Leviticus. As the law prescribed, the high priest, before he did the duties of the Day of Atonement, before he would enter into the presence of God, he had to take a ritual bath. You had to bathe and you had to put on special garments. Now, most priests in the old te- under the Old Covenant order, they wore they wore uniforms. They wore priestly garments. But the high priest wore four things that were unique to him. One, he wore an apron, otherwise known as an ephod or an ephod, depending on how you pronounce it. He wore, he wore a special apron that was wrapped around the back of his body and tied in front. He also wore a breastplate. And this breastplate is actually mentioned in the book of Revelation. So the breastplate was made from blue, red, and purple wool and gold strands and white linen. And it carried four rows of precious stones, 12 in all. That was another thing. Then he would wear a special robe. So you can see sort of the, the, all, all the, the, the ritual and ceremony when, and preparation before he would go and present himself before God for atonement for the people. So the third thing was a robe. Sleeveless robe made from wool worn on top of the tunic and the belt. And then, of course, from there, as tradition holds, they would fasten bells to it just in case the high priest got zapped and he did not perform the sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. As long as they heard those bells jingling, they knew he was walking around in there. They knew he was alive. Finally, and I think this is significant as well, is something known as the seat. That is a forehead plate made of pure gold uh, that extended from ear to ear, perforated at each end. And of course, a strap of blue wool would loop through and tie behind the head and keep it in place. And this is what is interesting. In this tzitzit, this this forehead plate, it would be inscribed with these words, holy unto God, devoted unto the Lord, devoted to His purposes. And we would say, if there was any day of devotion in the culture of Israel, it would be the Day of Atonement. So much hung on this. And so that was... That was the ritual. That's what the high priest would do. So notice, he would remove cert- he would remove his daily clothes and he would put on a special garment to perform this duty of atonement. Now think of this from the standpoint of Jesus. All this points to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. So what does Jesus do? How does, how does, how does this reference Christ? Well, I think we find that in Hebrews 10.5. It says this, Therefore, when he comes into the world, that is Jesus, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In a sense, that body is the priestly clothing. A body is prepared, or garments, as it were, are prepared for Jesus so that he may come and do God's will. And so why this is so significant that these garments are here is that Jesus has died and he has risen again and so the work is done and so now he can lay aside these old garments. These garments, as it were, are no longer needed because as high priest, he offered his own body and that body, that body became a pleasing and, note this, a once-for-all sacrifice 
before the Father. So now this sacrifice doesn't have to be recompleted every year or every Sunday for that matter. Because these old garments have been laid aside. And now what has happened is that Jesus has put on the garments of glory. And what is that glory? What does that glory point to? The reality of a new and resurrected humanity. And we follow Him in that glory. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on that newness. But what this signifies is that it's, it's the passing of the temple era. But there is a new humanity and a new priesthood and a new temple. Because what, what came to be on the Day of Atonement is that if the high priest would offer a sacrifice acceptable to the Lord, what would then happen is that the high priest would then lead the people into the presence of God. Doesn't that sound familiar? Who is it that now leads us to the presence of God? It's the Lord Jesus. The resurrected Lord Jesus. His body was prepared for Him. He completed that work that the Father had given Him, that priestly work, by offering Himself as the Lamb slain before the, before the foundation of the world. And He becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so now He is able to lay those old garments aside and put on an incorruptible garment of resurrection glory. And that is the destiny that awaits every believer in Jesus Christ. So as Jesus no longer needs the clothing of temple priests, nor do we. Because we are under the new covenant. We are all kings and priests. We are a royal priesthood following the Lord Jesus in triumphant procession. And Jesus leads us into the presence of God because He is the one, as we have said, He has already passed through the veil. And I think this the image of this, of being able to go into the presence of God, is wonderfully stated. Now look at the text again. Look at John 20 again. It says in verse 6, where Simon Peter came, also came following him and entered the tomb. Look at verse 5. Stooping and looking in. Looking into the most holy place could cost you your life. Entering it for sure would kill you. But now this is a beautiful imagery in fulfillment of Scripture that now that sacrifice for sin has been made once for all, we too can gain entrance into the Holy of Holies because Christ has already passed through. Because in Christ we are pleasing to God before a most holy God and now can stand before Him unashamed, clothed in the garments of salvation under our new, great, and awesome high priest. So in that sense, Jesus Christ is the true temple, and He is the true priest. And you look at this too. Look at the face cloth. Points us to the tzitzit, that, that, uh, that headpiece that's worn. Also put aside. It's amazing how the Old Testament connects us with this. Do not unhitch the Old Testament, my friends. This is the kind of text where we want to rehitch the Old Testament in order to truly understand what John is pointing us to. He's pointing us to the new temple. He's pointing us to Jesus Christ. And we see other imagery of this. Let's, let's look on. Verse 9. For as they did not for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead, even though the Scripture foretold that. Uh, so the disciples went away to their own homes. Now we, we should say, yes, they did. They did believe. They believed. And that is significant. They believed, they believed the Word. I think that's what's, what, what is clearly being said here. And yet, they did not understand the full implications of it. They were not able to put two and two together. So if you saw this and you didn't quite know what was going on, you probably would go home too. They didn't go home because they didn't believe. They just went home because they didn't understand. There's, there's definitely more to come. But for now, they simply went home. But now we come to Mary. We come to another significant character in this narrative. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. So she does the same thing that Peter does and that John does. She stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And so once again, we get carried back to 
the book of Exodus. We get carried back to Exodus chapter 25. Remember in Exodus chapter 25, the Lord gives specific and explicit instructions to the people of Israel of how to build the Holy of Holies. Remember, the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt in the tabernacle, which would be carried around because God wanted to dwell with his people. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where the blood would be sprinkled, the blood from the sacrifice. But then beside, on each side of the mercy seat, you had what are called two cherubim, two fashioned cherubim. They were giant. And they sat at both ends of the mercy seat. And this is significant. Verse 22, I will meet you there. That's what the Lord says. I will meet you there between the two cherubim. I will speak to you. The Lord is saying, Moses, I will meet with you here. And what do we see here? Two angels. Two angels. Two cherubim. And yet, not threatening. Mary can stoop in and look and not meet certain death because the tomb is empty because the sacrifice, the final sacrifice, has been made. And so in that sense, God meets with man and woman in an empty tomb. The tomb is a temple. Christ is a temple and Christ is the high priest. And so, going on to verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Mary, of course, has a problem. Where is Jesus? She clearly loves him. This is so, I think this is so significant, and we'll see why pretty soon. And then verse 14 When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So similar to the to the men on the road to Emmaus, when they're talking to Jesus, they don't really they don't know who they're talking to. They don't realize it's Jesus until it is revealed to them that it is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in her sadness. She weeps. And Jesus says, woman, why are you? you weeping. And I think this is where we see the Lord Jesus as the new Adam. And I don't think this is merely symbolism. This is something that we call, write this down, recapitulation, like a, a retelling. So pattern. So scripture has all these patterns. And when something is recapitulated, it is something that is retold. Not merely, not merely through symbols, but in this case, scripture is retelling a story, but in a new way. It's recapitulating, and here's how. He says, the Lord says, Woman, why are you weeping? And I, and I believe what this is retelling is the Garden of Eden. We are in a garden. We are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, the true Adam, the true gardener, is with a woman. Points us back to the opening creation narrative of Adam and Eve, where there is a man. It's all we know now. A man, a gardener, a man placed there to cultivate the earth and take dominion over it. And there is a woman that is the mother of all living. That is Eve. And so here, Mary Magdalene is not called Mary. She is called woman. And I think this is significant because it does point us back to the reality of the fall. And I realize that the the narrative in Genesis does not say that Eve wept. But one undeniable thing happened to Eve. She witnessed the fall of man. She and her husband, Adam, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were open. They realized they were naked. And then they hid. They hid. Eve was there. She saw creation come under a curse. And so here we see A woman weeping. We see Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 thrown out of the garden. But we go back to the angels and what don't we see? We don't see the flaming swords. Listen to Genesis 3. There's an interesting connection here. Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. That was the penalty. Because the Garden of Eden was where God dwelt with man. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, two angels, and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So that's the old garden. And here we come to a new garden. And there's cherubim, there's a woman, and there's a man. But where's the sword? There is no sword because the sword has already pierced the side of the Savior. The sword of Eden has pierced the side of the Lord. The penalty... So so basically what we see here is that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken upon Himself the penalty of death. Again, the sword of Eden has struck its blow so that we do not have to be struck by it. So that now, that flaming sword that turned every which way so that we would be barred from the presence of God has now been taken out of the way. The justice that that sword would strike with has been satisfied. There is no sword. There is no sword. There is a man, and there is a woman, and there are two cherubim. But the cherubim were not threatening. They are not telling bad news. They are telling good news. They are there to witness the beginning of the new creation. That's when the new creation began. That's what this all is pointing to. That's why Colossians characterizes Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. He is even preeminent in His resurrection. He is the beginning of the new humanity. And in that sense, He is true man. And all who are in Him by faith in His death and resurrection are new men. So here we are standing in this garden with Mary Magdalene and the Lord Jesus witnessing the dawn of the new creation. And yet she did not know it was Jesus. She thought it was a gardener. But here we are in the new Eden. But here's, the, here's two main differences. Jesus as true man or true Adam. He as a gardener would succeed in two ways where Adam failed. And I realize there's probably way more ways that he succeeded. But two, I think, stand out in this narrative. Here's the first one. Is that Jesus will now successfully subdue this world and take dominion over it so that the entire world will be full of the glory of the Lord. Adam was tasked to cultivate the garden, to work it so that the garden would grow. He failed. He was kicked out of the garden. He could still cultivate, but he failed in his mission. He would never succeed, nor would any other man in all of creation until the Lord Jesus, the God-man, entered time and space and succeeded where Adam failed. On account of Jesus, we look forward to the inevitable reality that the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. We're promised that in the prophets. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. Second, I think this is significant as well, and this was pointed out to me, is that this is a scene of Jesus and His bride. That we understand here that Jesus will watch over his bride. He will do what Adam failed to do. Adam was with his wife when the fall took place. I don't know what Adam was doing. I don't know what he was thinking. But he failed. That is, that, that is what we know. And in Christ we know that he will not fail. He will not fail his church. He will succeed to, in protecting and preserving and glorifying his bride. And those are the, that is the, the glorious reality of the beginning of this new creation. Christ, the true temple. Christ, the true priest. Christ, the true man. We're seeing this newness begin to bloom and blossom and develop. And it shows us this wonderful picture of what was lost and now that which has been regained. Woman, why are you weeping? Weep no more. Mary, Mary. Now He calls her by, by name. And in the same sense, the church is called by name. We are, we are his sheep. He is our good shepherd and he knows us and calls us by name and he leads us to pasture. We follow him. We hear his word and we trust in him. Then she says, Rabboni, verse 17. Jesus said, uh, verse 16, she says that, which means teacher. 
So she recognizes Jesus now. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. And of course, there's a lot packed in there. But I think this is what we should focus on. Where he says to her, Stop clinging to me. So she recognizes him, and instantly, and we should expect this from her, she loved the Lord, she would cling to him. This is Mary Magdalene, one who was possessed by seven demons and the Lord drove them out of her. Tells us that the Lord can, the Lord can save anyone. He reaches it out to those who are most desperate. And of course, if you have been forgiven much, you love much, and we see Mary Magdalene cling to him, almost reminiscent of Song of Solomon, I have found the one whom my soul loves. Jesus is the one whom Mary loves and cherishes. And she says, and he says, don't cling to me. In other, in other translations, touch. But this, the Greek does reflect a, a clinging. Someone who is clinging with a, with a tough grip and will not let go. And of course, this is understandable. Mary didn't want Jesus to die. She doesn't want to, she, she certainly doesn't want to lose him a second time. Hey, Jesus, where are you going? Stay with me. And yet, he still tells her, do not cling to me. And he explains, look at the text again. He says, for, here's why, I have not yet ascended to the Father. That's why. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So in the meantime, he gives her an important task. Go and testify to my brethren that I am going to ascend. Okay. But his explanation is that I am going to, I have not ascended yet, so don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. And he has announced this previously already to his disciples in chapter 14 of John. When they're in the upper room, he does say, I am going to the Father. In chapter 17, he says as much the same thing. He says, he says to the Father, I am coming to you. He is getting ready to ascend, to return to the Father. And so he says, I can't, I can't stay. I can't remain. Don't cling to me. I have to ascend. And the ascension of the Messiah is a huge promise in the Old Testament. In Psalm 110, we read this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is descriptive of Christ's ascension. What would he be ascended as? As king. It's also referenced in Psalm 2, that he would be the king set up on the mountain of the Lord. And that he would crush rebellious kings and nations. And so in all of this, Christ says he must ascend. And there's a lesson here. Okay. On one hand, I think it's important that we notice this, because most of us would think, yeah, we want to, we would cling to Jesus too. And we think, wouldn't it be so awesome to be able to go back to the first century for a time and be able to see Jesus, to see him work miracles, to see him teach, right? Maybe even to see him walk on water. It'd be great. Wouldn't it be awesome to walk side by side with Jesus? And yet, in, in, in those things, in those imaginations, there is sort of a temptation to compartmentalize him. Yes, we are to cling to Jesus, but we are to, we are to cling to Jesus on his own terms. And we, and, and, and here's what his terms are. In his completeness, in his complete revelation. Rather than just to compartmentalize in particular way at the absence of, of all the other ways in which Jesus has revealed himself. I mean, at Christmas, we sometimes cling to the baby in the manger, do we not? Oh, look at that cute little baby Jesus. And we think of him in those terms. This innocent, helpless, crying little baby. Sometimes we cling to the miracle worker in Galilee. We think of this gentle, meek, humble carpenter who never offended anybody. Who never said anything mean. Who never said anything hard. We even look to the Old Testament. We may even cling to the angel of the Lord. Israel was certainly commanded to because he was there with him. And here we would think Mary is clinging to the risen Lord. What's wrong with that? Why, why would Jesus say, don't cling to me? We would think, hasn't the work been accomplished? It's finished. Why wouldn't she? Because, again, going back to John 1, grace upon grace, we find, unsurprisingly, that there is more grace to be revealed here. 
And that grace is that Jesus would ascend. There is more to experience of the Lord. So the point is, is that do not cling to Jesus either in a compartmentalized way or in a temporary way. Jesus is is encouraging Mary to cling to Him in a permanent way. Cling to what is permanent. And I think when we see Jesus ascended, it takes into account the angel of the Lord. It takes into account the baby in the manger. It takes into account the Nazarene preacher and miracle worker. And all this culminates in His exaltation and ascension. And that is permanent. That never expires. He is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a high priest forever. And He lives to ever make intercession for us. Why else did Jesus ascend? What are we told? He has to ascend in order to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a permanent fixture. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit forever. What else can we do now that He has ascended? Listen to this. I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Forever now we can call God Father. Now why do we say that? Why do we belabor this point? Where is the encouragement? Is that in clinging to what is permanent, we are clinging to the fullness of of the of Trinitarian grace. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all come to bear in a in a new and living way in the new covenant. The Spirit dwells with us. The Son is our High Priest and our King. And we can call on God as Father. And so when Jesus ascends, we see Him here now as true King. The Old Testament Scriptures point not only to a Savior, but a Savior who would be King. A Savior who would be Lord. And He wants us to cling to Him in all of His fullness. That which is full, but that which is also permanent. And then we find a new relationship develops. As Christ is our King and we are able to call God Father, Jesus calls us brothers. Jesus is our elder brother. We don't always think of Him that way, but He says, go to my brethren. Go to my brethren. So Christ, even in His exalted kingship, sees us as Family, we are His younger brothers. And what a blessing that is, that though He is all of these exalted titles, all of these exalted offices, He still calls us brothers. Brothers by faith. We are brothers on the basis of the cross. It is through His death and resurrection, His final satisfying sacrifice that enables us to be His Brothers, listen to Hebrews 2 9. Jesus suffered death so that he could bring us to glory, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so, all of these things have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. And so, we come to the end verse here. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that. He had said these things to her. So she told them everything. But everything that Mary witnessed, everything that Mary saw in, as to how Jesus revealed Himself to her in that situation, as true temple, as true priest, as true man, as true king, all of those things culminate in this understanding she has that Jesus is Lord. And that is how, in His resurrection, He would have us see Him. He would have us see Him as Lord. He would have us cling to Him. But don't cling to things that are temporary. Cling to what is permanent. Cling to what is fixed. Cling, He says, to what is forever. I have seen the Lord. And that is our proclamation. We have seen the Lord. Repent and believe the Gospel. Because if we have seen the Lord, we have seen Him as He is true, as He reveals Himself in in His fullness, in His totality. I have seen the Lord. This echoes Isaiah. Close with this. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we read this testimony from Isaiah. And he says this, I saw the Lord, 
I saw the Lord seated on his throne, exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. So there's that image of the temple again. And then what does he go on to say? The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So Isaiah is a foreshadowing of what Mary saw, where in the temple, the Lord emerging from the temple, think of this as emerging from the tomb, the whole earth is filled with his glory. At first confined to a small space within the Old Testament temple, and then within the tomb, we have this promise of the growth of the presence of that glory. The glory of the Lord tells us that he is present. And even in this vision in Isaiah, we see this presence growing, expanding. It's not just in the Holy of Holies. It fills the whole temple. What began in a tomb, what began in a temple, what began in a garden, will go on to be present everywhere. Just remember that. In His resurrection, the Lord is present with us. He is here. He is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, thank You again uh, for Your love for us. We thank You for our risen Lord. We thank You for uh, all that the this scene in John tells us. That we can see You clearly. That we can come before You, Lord, as with, with Christ as our true temple, with Christ as our true priest, that He has done all the work necessary, has laid aside His old garments, and has taken up a garment of incorruptible glory that is promised to us as well. Thank You, Lord, that He is the true Adam, the true man, the new man, who gives his life to us, who leads us in newness. Lord, we thank you that he is also our Lord and King. He is true King. And in all these things, Lord, he is risen. And for that we rejoice. So help us, God, to cling, not only not to what is passing, but to cling to what is permanent. Help us to, to see Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture in all that He has accomplished, and all that He continues to do. But Lord, help us not to, not to limit Him to a particular office or even to a particular time in history, but that we would see the totality of what He has done. That we would cling to the permanence of who He is. That He is all these things forever. And by virtue of that, we are forever able to experience the grace that He provides. And so we are thankful, Lord. May we continue our worship in a spirit of rejoicing. Lord, help us in light of this newness that we experience by the truth of the Gospel to, to love one another. Lord, we cling to You together. And may we also cling to each other. May we recognize Your presence with us. May we recognize the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit and and abide with each other as we abide with you. And all these things, Father, we commit to you. In the name of our risen Savior. Amen.